Father, for those of us that are in uh, good health, we say thank you. What a gift we've been given. We think that it will always be there. That's just the normal thing. That's, that's the natural thing. We assume it will be there. But life uh, can be interrupted. We expect when we get older for things to happen. But when we are young and our wife is young and our kids are young, we're just assuming everything is going to be fine on the health front. And here's a guy that's been hit, and he's been hit hard, and he's been hit before. It would be very easy for him and his wife to panic and to think the very, very worst because uh, this is bad. We ask that you would calm their hearts. We ask that you would remind them that you are sovereign over every cell in his body, as you are over every cell in our bodies. We don't understand, Father, why you allow these things to come as they do. But what we do understand is that you have told us to call upon you on the day of trouble. And you will hear us, and you will answer us, and you will rescue us. So we pray for David and his wife. We would, of course, ask that you might touch his body physically and heal him. That's what we would ask. That's, that's what makes sense to us. We pray as he goes to see this doctor that there might perhaps be a breakthrough medically that you have given the doctors now that could put this cancer in remission. We pray that as they go through this physically that they might grow spiritually. We pray that they would grow together as a couple, that as they go through deep waters that their relationship would become even deeper. That's how life tends to work. So may your hand be upon this family. May they sense your presence. May they live off your promises. We're all, Lord, in this room, we're dealing with different issues. Some health, like this man. Some of us are dealing with relational issues that uh, kept us up last night, perhaps. Some of us have got uh, pressure from, uh, from our careers or lack of careers at this point. There are a multitude of things, Lord, that can weigh us down. But what all those things do is that they drive us to you. And they remind us how dependent we are upon you. We thank you, Lord, that you know that we need all these things. We thank you that you are aware of our circumstances and every situation and all of the things that um, are, are, are details that all these things hinge upon, all of all of the things, Lord, that have to fall in place for these things to be resolved. And for some of us, there are so many things that have to fall in place, uh, we we start to lose hope and think that nothing will ever happen. But for many of us in this room, we've been walking with you long enough to see you do something great when we thought it was hopeless. So, Lord, help us to live off the promises. Help us to live off your word. Instruct us tonight as we look at Proverbs. Give us the wisdom we so desperately need. You've promised to give us that wisdom. You've promised 
to give, it, give us that wisdom if we would ask you for it. You, you, you have said you'll, you give wisdom to all men who ask and you give without reproach. Make this time significant. Make it worthwhile. Remind us how great you are. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of Winston Churchill's political rivals was Clement Attlee. And in referring to Mr. Attlee one day, Churchill said this. He said, Clement Attlee is a very modest man. But then again, Clement Attlee has much to be modest about. Classic Churchill. Uh, there were a number of leaders in England in the 1930s who were very modest about their achievements and about their discernment and about their vision because they completely missed what was going on. Uh, Herman Goebbels pulled together a group of German journalists on April 5th, 1940, four days before the Nazi invasion of Norway, and he gave a briefing to these selected journalists from Germany, one of whom made a transcript. Here's the key passage as recorded in uh, Paul Johnson's book, Modern Times. Here's what Goebbels said, April 5th, 1940. Up to now, we have succeeded in leaving the enemy in the dark concerning Germany's real goals. Just as before 1932, our domestic foes never saw what we were going, where we were going, or that our oath of legality was just a trick. We wanted to come to power legally, but we did not want to use power legally. They could have suppressed us. They could have arrested a couple of us in 1925, and that would have been that. It would have been the end. But no, they led us through the danger zone. That's exactly how it was in foreign policy, too. In 1933, a French premier ought to have said, and if I had been the French premier, I would have said it, this new Reich chancellor is the man who wrote Mein Kampf, which says this, and it says that. This man cannot be tolerated in our vicinity. Either he disappears or we march. But they didn't do it. They left us alone and let us slip through the risky zone, and we were able to sail around all of the dangerous reefs. And when we were done and well-armed, better than they, then they started the war. There were many men in England, many men in France, who in the 1930s had much to be modest about. They were political leaders. They were men who were given a responsibility. Uh, they were men who could feel the pulse of the people and understood that the majority of people did not want to go to war after the horrendous losses of 19, uh, 18, 19 and World War I. They understood that. But these men were lacking in something that Churchill had. And what they were lacking in was wisdom. And that's what Goebbels was saying. These men did not have the wisdom to stop us when they should have stopped us. Wisdom is a very, very valuable commodity. Uh, Proverbs is all about wisdom. Proverbs is a book uh, that is part of a number of books that are called uh, the wisdom literature. Um, wisdom literature is given to us so that we might live correctly. Uh, we noticed last week Proverbs 1 verse 7. If you have your Bible, turn there with me, if you would. 
And we focused on the fact, among other things, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ron Allen, in his commentary, says this, The words, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, set the record straight, so to speak. This is the foundation on which all other wise sayings stand. It is the book of Proverbs' central idea. Fear, catch this, fear of the Lord motivates us to obey God's commandments and obedience to them constitutes true wisdom. What is true wisdom? True wisdom is obeying what this book says. I mentioned to a group of guys this afternoon that your Bible is not a Microsoft Word document. It's not Microsoft Word. It is the Word. If it's Microsoft Word, you can cut and paste and delete. But you don't do that with this book because this book is the Word of God. We are under this book. We do not edit it. We do not uh, cut it. We do not paste it. We do not delete. We take it as it is. It is the revealed, inerrant word of God. If you believe that right there, you're on the path to wisdom. But believing that, that this is the word of God, it's good you believe it, but that's not quite going far enough. Because James said that we are to be not just hearers of the word, but we are to be doers. If you're a wise man, you don't just hear the word, you actually, you actually do the word. Ron Allen, one more time on, on wisdom. He says, there is no mystery about the wisdom that is contained in Proverbs nor is it necessarily limited to a privileged few. Some people historically have felt they had wisdom, but only the elite, only the intelligentsia could comprehend it. That's not true of Proverbs. The wisdom that Proverbs mentions more than 40 times and that Ecclesiastes mentions 27 times is the Hebrew chokmah, chokmah which means something like the skill of living. This wisdom is practical, not esoteric. It means that a person knows how to live in a responsible, productive, and prosperous way. From that standpoint, Alan goes on, the wisdom of Proverbs has a lot in common with what we might call common sense or even street smarts. It is an understanding of the way the world works. The issue is not so much what one knows intellectually, but what one does practically. It is truth applied. That's why Proverbs deals with so many day-to-day -day issues, especially those involving moral choices and other decisions that affect the future. The wise person avoids evil and promotes good by observing what others have chosen and then pursuing a course of action based on the outcomes. Thus, the Proverbs are not so much, catch this, the Proverbs are not so much promises of God as they are observations and principles about how life, how life works. Uh, wisdom is common sense. Wisdom means you can take truth and skillfully apply it to situations that you're dealing with. It was three years ago that I was in Israel, and I've been over there several times. I've had that privilege, and I took my mom with me. We were a big tour of family bookstores, and uh, my mom was able to go with me, and we had a great time. And towards the end of the tour, we were in Jerusalem. We were in the old city, and they were looking at some sites that, quite frankly, I'd seen before weren't that interesting. And we were running out of time. 
there is a view of the Wailing Wall. You've seen it on television many times. You know, they're bowing, and it's the remaining wall of Solomon's Temple. And we weren't too far from it. And I, you're, you're about 200 yards away from the wall, and you're elevated. And where we were, I thought I could find my way to that balcony, to that ledge. And, and so I'm, we're walking, and I'm, I'm off by a street or two. I knew I was close. And I'm looking around, and I'm trying to figure out how to get to that balcony. And a Palestinian guy walks up to me probably 45, very polite, very congenial, very outgoing. And he says, oh, I, could I help you? Are, are you trying to find something? I said, I'm trying to find that balcony, that ledge, that observation area where you can see the, the Wailing Wall. He said, oh, yes, it, it's, let me show you. I said, well, no, that's all right. Just, just, I know it's right down here. He said, oh, it's just very close. He said, I will show you. I said, yeah, no, that's all right. I don't want to take your time. Just put me on the right street. He said, follow me. This guy starts walking. So, fine. Guy going out of his way, real nice guy. And, we, and I was real close. In about 45 seconds, we're there. And there it is, and it's wonderful. He says, I said, hey, thanks. I really appreciate that. He said, oh, you're welcome. He says, now you give me a good tip for taking you here. I said, no. No, I don't give you a good tip. I said you didn't have to do this, but you insisted. In the King James, the term would be his countenance changed. <laughs> and he went from this congenial, real nice, chamber of commerce guy. I'm going to tell you something. This guy became enraged and started screaming at me. You will give me money now. And my mom, he's here. My mom is here. And he's screaming at me. So I grabbed my mom, and she said, Stephen, give me money. I said, I'm not giving any money, and get behind me. I said, I'm not giving you a dime. You must, I mean, and I'm going to tell you something. This guy got enraged. I, I don't want to oversell this, but it almost became demonic how he began to act screaming at the top. He, he, he got up very threatening. I said, I am not giving you a dime. You know why I wasn't going to give him a dime? Because if I gave him five bucks, do you think that was going to satisfy him in that condition? Absolutely not. My mom, Steve, give me money. I'm not giving him money. I'm not giving you a dime. And in fury, he turns and walks away. I thought, well, okay, that's over. And then he starts running at me and charging me. And there's nobody around. So I assumed the ministry position. <laughs> I, I didn't know what the guy was going to do, and I got my mom there. Yeah. And he starts running at me, and I, just said, and I just said, I am not giving you a dime. You got it clear? You, I had to get real straight with this sucker. And finally, he turned and took off. See, that's why you need to study history. Because if you appease somebody like that, they're going to try and take it. You can never satisfy them. They're always going to come back. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, what I had to do there was apply the Word of God. That's when you need wisdom. And you don't need it up there in a library somewhere 
what you need is wisdom for how to manipulate and skillfully, not manipulate, but skillfully navigate through a situation. That was a little disconcerting, quite frankly. See, that's the wisdom in Proverbs. It tells you how to navigate through life on the street. That's what Proverbs is all about. Uh, it, it, it's very practical. It's very down to earth. Truth is meant to be lived out. Truth is meant to be, uh, it's meant to be applied. And that's wisdom. Wisdom is, is applying what you know to be true as situations come up in life. Edward Thorndike said this. He said, colors fade, temples crumble, empires fall, but wise words endure. Man, that's a true statement. Benjamin Franklin said this. If your head is wax, don't walk in the sun. That'll work on the street, don't you think? See, that's, uh, now, the difference, Benjamin Franklin wrote, wrote a lot of Proverbs in his little booklet called, anybody remember? Poor Richard's Almanac. A lot of pithy little sayings. The difference between Benjamin Franklin and Solomon is that what Solomon put down was inspired by Almighty God. It's the truth of God. I mentioned it's part of the wisdom literature. I had a great quote. Where did it go? It's in here somewhere. That's not it. I mean, this is really good. No, I, 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 I took it with me. Let's stand and sing. That really kind of hacks me off because that was a good quote. I think I remember it. It's from uh, Oswald Chambers. Job is wisdom for suffering. Psalms is wisdom for life. Proverbs is wisdom of behavior. Ecclesiastes is wisdom over misery. And, and Song of Solomon is wisdom on how to love. Actually, that's not even close, but how would you know that? <laughs> it's pretty close. It was really a good quote. I'll find it next week. That really upsets me. Okay. Proverbs, as we pointed out, is basically a father instructing his son uh, about how to live life. Now, does that mean that a mom has nothing to say? Well, of course not. Uh, if you look at chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. We've all learned a lot from our moms, and we're grateful for godly moms, and we're grateful for grandly, uh, godly grandmothers. This is a family affair, raising children, teaching children, instructing children. Uh, that's why God puts us in families. Uh, if you've got a, a family, extended family, where there are believers, 
you've been blessed indeed. God has been good to you. Uh, but the father is responsible for the home. And the father is responsible for the family. And the Proverbs is a father instructing a son about life, wisdom for the street, wisdom for the moral issues that he will face uh, as he goes through life. Um, I think one of the best books ever written is Robinson Crusoe. A couple years ago, I saw the movie with Tom Hanks, Castaway. And it was such a crock that I went the next day and bought Robinson Crusoe to read it again because I hadn't read it since I was like 12. I'm not even sure I read the whole thing when I was 12. But the reason the movie Castaway upset me, you probably saw the movie, is not one time did a guy, <clears throat> excuse me, in that situation, lost everything, abandoned, stranded, you know, he's just, he's trying to make it, he's trying to survive on a daily basis. Not once did he utter the name of God. I don't think that's real. It was based on Robinson Crusoe. Uh, interestingly enough, the whole story of Robinson Crusoe and the reason he got stranded is that he was running from the advice and wisdom of his godly father. That's how Robinson Crusoe got stranded in the first place. He says, I had two elder brothers, and one of them was killed in battle. That sets the context. Being the third son of the family and not bred to any trade, my head began to be filled very early with rambling thoughts. My father, who was very aged, had given me a competent share of learning as far as house education and a country-free school generally go. And he designed me for the law, but I would be satisfied with nothing but going to see. And he, he then says, my father, a wise man, gave me serious and excellent counsel against what he foresaw was my design. In other words, he saw that this kid was bent a certain way and going to see didn't make sense. Didn't we talk about this a couple weeks ago? That if your, your child has bents, if your kid is good with people, don't try to make him into a bookkeeper. If he's not analytical, if he's not good with numbers, you, you, you see, children come out of the womb with strengths and with gifts. It's the job of a father to ascertain the gifts and strength of that child and encourage them in that way. Well, that's what this father's trying to do with Crusoe. And, as he, and, and he goes on about how his dad's trying to help him and trying to give him wisdom. Um, he told me of men who had gone to sea with, with gold in their eyes and, and visions of great adventures and how that had come to nothing and the danger of going to sea and the fact that so many men didn't come back. Um, and then my father prayed for me that I might have neither poverty nor riches. Where does that come from? comes from Proverbs. Oh, gosh, there's so much here. But, but the whole story begins with a father trying to impart the wisdom of Proverbs to his son, but his son won't listen. We're in chapter 1, verses 20 to 33 tonight. And here's how I'd break this up. Verses 20 to 23, 
is an offer you cannot refuse. And that's wisdom. Those verses contain an offer you cannot refuse, which is wisdom. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her saying. The gates of the city is where everything happened, all the commerce. When you go to Israel, if you go to these old cities, everything happened at the gates. Job talked about before he was afflicted, he would sit at the city gates. They would transact business. They would work out problems. They would work out situations between landowners. Everything happened at the city gates. The gates were huge uh, in terms of influence. They were also very large in terms of size. They were wide. They were big. There was room to spread out. There was room to interact. Well, wisdom, wisdom is at the entrance of the gates in the city. She utters her saying. And wisdom here is being spoken of as a person. Wisdom is being personified. And what does wisdom say? She utters her saying, How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? Or or actually the idea is not only being simple-minded, but of being young and youthful. And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and, and fools hate knowledge. So the idea here is that wisdom is warning those who are young, those who are naive, those who are not familiar with life. Now, the thing about a guy like Robinson Crusoe, who's 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 years old, and where were you when you were that age? We think we know so much more than we actually do. But was it Mark Twain said, when I was 16, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to be around the man. But when I was 21, I was amazed at how much my father had learned in five years. (laughs) That's pretty common, isn't it? 16, 17, 18, we think we got it wired. We think we know, and we don't have a clue what's out there. We don't have a clue what the real world is like, and wisdom Wisdom is offering herself to those young men. Wisdom is offering itself to young women. Wisdom is offering itself to those who are naive and simple-minded and uh, ill-equipped and ill-prepared to face uh, what is out there. Did you see that uh, in 22? Naive. Oh, naive ones, how, you, how long, oh, naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. You know what that reminds me of? Proverbs 1 reminds me of Psalm 1. Why don't you flip over there real quick? This is the same deal as how the Psalms kick off. Same concept. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. What he's talking about here, it it doesn't mean that you live your life apart from people like this or that you never have any contact with them. What he's referring to is how blessed is the man who was not influenced 
by these types of people? Who are your counselors? Before you came to know Christ, probably people were your counselors who had no interest in Christ, and as a, as a result, they had no wisdom. Um, scoffers, those who mock at the truth of God. Um, uh, sinners, those who are in rebellion to God. See, this is all an issue of who, who is it that's influencing you? Who is it that you're listening to? How blessed is the man who doesn't do these things, who doesn't hang around and get input from those people? Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. See, there you go. What did God say to Joshua? This law, shall, this law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall not depart from it, neither to the left nor to the right. But you shall meditate it on it both day and night so that you will have success. He's speaking of the word of God. He's, he's talking about the truth of God. In other words, the man who will do well in life is the man who is influenced by the truth and the wisdom of Almighty God. In his law, he meditates. You say, well, you know, Steve, I got other things I got to think about. Sure you do. But, but it's, it's, it's like chewing gum. You, you, you got that gum and you're chewing on it. it it's there. That, that's, that's what meditation is. Meditation is chewing on the truth as you go through life. You've got other things you're doing. You've got commerce. You've got business. You've got relationships with people. But, but the word of God is on the back burner, and you always have immediate access to it when you need it. Uh, I got a guy building the, rebuilding my deck. It, it, it's been in bad shape for a long time. And when he fell through it last week, <laughs> he mentioned to me that I might want to consider rebuilding it. And, and this guy does some work for me uh, from time to time. And I said, yeah, you're right. We better do this. And he, uh, he said, well, I'll get some prices on lumber and all that. Well, he comes back... Uh, right after dinner, and he said, hey, Home Depot's running a, a, a deal. It's 10% off today if you got a contractor's deal, and I have that. And I said, well, here, why don't I give you my credit card, and you just go do it. He said, great. So he gets down, and he calls me about a half hour later, and he said, um, it's over at 6.30. The contractor's desk closes at 6.30. He said, let me come back in the morning and see if I can get him to give me the 10% off. I said, great. Well, Next morning, he calls me about 10. And he says, hey, I'm home, home Depot. This guy wants to make sure I can use your card. So I get on the phone with the guy. And uh, I said, yeah, that's fine. I said, hey, by the way, they're running the 10% deal. And he got there a little late. You think you could give that to us? He says, I think we can do that. I said, great. That's, that's really, I, I appreciate it. Thanks. He comes back, and he's got the receipts and all that. And he goes, hey, you're not going to believe this. You got 20% off the lumber. I said, really? I said, how'd that happen? He said, well, when you got on the phone and asked the guy for 10%, I'd already talked to the other guy, and he'd already given me a price and took the 10% off. <laughs> and then when you said that to the guy, he took another 10% off. I said, no kidding. I said, did you tell him that? He said, no. He said, they make all kinds of money down there. I said, yeah, they do. But he said, that's 20% off. That's almost $600. I said, yeah. But I can't afford a deal like that. 
And he said, what do you mean? I said, you know, I, I can't do that. I said, I, I'm leaving to go do a conference, but what, just leave that with me when I get back. I'll talk to him. Um, see, that's how it's supposed to work. Now, you know, that, that, that 10%, that's 300 bucks. But you know what? That's a pretty good deal. That's a pretty good deal. Actually, it isn't. Because what, what do you think? Does God bless somebody who steals $300? No. God doesn't bless that. So why the heck would you do it? God could give you $300 like that. See, in his law, he meditates day and night. See, there's a situation. There's a situation. It's real life. I got to deal. I got to apply truths to what I'm going through in life. Now, can I use that $300? Sure. You can always use $300. But what I want in my life is the favor and blessing of God. So the guy who meditates day and night, they tell us what he's like. Verse 3. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. When we were in England a year ago, one of the things that amazed me was the size of the English oak trees. They are massive, and they are majestic. And we were, we were in London for three or four days, and then we rented a car, and we're driving through the Cotswolds, which it all looks like a Thomas Kincaid painting. It makes Thomas Kincaid look like a trailer park. I'm being honest with you. Everywhere you look, it's a postcard. You guys, some of you guys have been there. You know what I'm talking about. It's unbelievable. And we stayed. We had some friends that had been there, and they said, you know, stay at this place. And it was this old English castle, and, and this place was unbelievable. I mean, it was, I mean, it was just it was from the 15th century, and walked in the gardens. Then behind it was a church, a Saxon church built in the 5th century. Unbelievable. And they still worship there. And there was this trout stream running alongside. I mean, this was unbelievable. Believable. And right along, as you'd walk along this crystal clear trout stream, there's these massive English oaks. Massive. It was just like a tree planted by streams of water. In fact, that's what it was. <coughs> Majestic, beautiful leaves. Healthy, gorgeous tree. Probably three, four hundred years old. I got another quote in here on trees. <laughs> here you go. <clears throat> I wrote this in Point Man a while back. A fully developed oak tree is a magnificent specimen of God's creation. We are impressed with its commanding and imposing presence. I'm speaking of Psalm 1. The passage in Psalm 1 describes precisely the man who has his roots sunk deep into the truth of God's word. Did you know that the most critical part of a tree is its root system? A tree's spreading superstructure is matched by its underpinnings. In fact, the two are not quite mere images the roots may run out as far as three times the crown. So you see this great, massive English oak tree? The roots are probably three times further out than the canopy of the oak tree. A typical 
40-foot tall oak tree every day takes in 50 gallons of dissolved nutrients from the soil. Every day, 50 gallons. That's what a man is like who doesn't listen to scoffers, who doesn't sit in the council of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates day and night. He'll be like that English oak. Let me tell you something. That English oak isn't going anywhere. The storms come, that oak's standing. It's like the, uh, it's like the giant sequoias, the giant redwoods in California. You, you, you can, there are different places. If you go to Mount Hermon, where Chuck goes every summer with Insight, they got, they got uh, redwoods. But there are only two places in California where they have the giant redwoods. Up along Highway 1, up towards Eureka on the coast, and then in Sequoia National Park, which is just next to Yosemite. Uh, those are the largest trees in the world. They are massive in size. In fact, back before Greenpeace and all the environmental stuff, <clears throat> they were putting a road through there, and they just cut a road, a two-lane road, right chumping through a giant redwood. Today, they'd, try to, they'd call 911 and try to resuscitate it. But they just put an oval in it. So you can have two cars, drive, you're driving through this giant redwood. Uh, those things are, some of them are 2,000 years old, those trees. They have been through fires. They have been through lightning strikes. And one of the things so interesting, one of those trees, they have a museum, one of those massive trees is over on its side. And you can see the rings, but you can also see when it went through a forest fire. It's very clear. Now, how does a tree like that survive? A, a, a tree like that is so vulnerable. How does a tree like that survive a forest fire? Well, the answer is, is the bark. Those giant trees can survive just about anything because the bark on that tree is two feet thick. Not a foot. That's about, about a foot. Two feet. Two feet of bark. The Word of God, yeah, that's a lot of mulch. The, that, that's what the Word of God does for us. Not only do your roots go down deep, but your bark, you see, your bark is protecting you as you go through life. Now, when we're young and when we're naive and when we're simple-minded, we think we can get a better deal than wisdom. Wisdom is offered to anyone. James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. God will give you wisdom if you ask God for wisdom. But when we're young and when we're naive and when we, we all look back and, and, we, and we're just amazed at some of the dumb things that we did. Um, because like Robinson Crusoe, we didn't listen to those who were trying to impart wisdom to us. And we got ourselves in a lot of trouble and we got hurt and we probably hurt some other people. Uh, that's part of life. Uh, you learn from your mistakes. That's the next point of the next three verses. If you look at verses 24 through 27, you'll see that wisdom is an offer that is usually refused. I'll say that again. It's an offer that is usually refused. That's verses 24 through 27. Wisdom is again speaking. Because I called out and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention. Wisdom is offering itself, but no one's listening. 
and you neglected all my counsel, and you did not want my reproof? Hey, let me ask you something. Where you are in your life right now, is it possible that God's trying to get some wisdom across to you, and you're not catching it? Sure, it's possible. That's possible for me. It's possible for you. I've got something I'm pondering right now. And I'm not sure it's the wise thing to do. I've been thinking about it since, uh, about for a couple of weeks. And it, and, it, and, it, and it seems like the right thing. But then I realized this weekend, you know what? I'm violating a principle of wisdom, which Proverbs says in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. In an abundance of counselors, there's wisdom. The people I normally talk about, about something like this, I haven't talked to them. I'm setting myself up if I don't talk to those people who I trust their counsel. So you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm going to call them. I'm going to run it by them and see what they think. See, that's, that's, that's just smart. That just makes sense. So then why haven't I done it? I don't know. Because I thought I had it figured out. See, that's where I can be my own worst enemy and you can be your own worst enemy. If you're not sure, check it with somebody. Hey, you know what? If you are sure, check it with somebody who you respect, you respect their walk with the Lord because, see, that's how, that's how we get ourselves out of trouble. That's how we avoid pitfalls. That's how we avoid snares that the enemy wants to do. What the enemy loves to do is to isolate a man. He loves to isolate us from others in the body that can um, give us wisdom and counsel and input. And it's a very, very subtle thing. Um, wisdom is an offer that many refuse and as a result, they step into situations and hurt themselves that, that quite frankly, they don't need, that, that, that could have been avoided. Wisdom is a wonderful thing. But you guys realize that wisdom is tied up with truth. It's skillful application of the truth. We're living in a very fascinating time because we're living in a day and age that basically says, there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. And they'll say that to you, absolutely. And we hear this constantly. We hear it in the media. We read it in magazines. Constantly, we are told that there is no truth. But we have the source of truth. It's just a matter of taking that truth and applying it and saying, Lord, I don't want to miss the wisdom that you have for me in this situation. If we ask him for wisdom, he'll give it to us. We, we can refuse wisdom by just neglecting wisdom and by assuming we've got it. What is it the Scripture says? Pride goes before the fall. Al Mohler, he's the president of Southern Seminary. He's quoting in this article J. Gresham Machen who uh, was thrown out of the Presbyterian church for standing on the word of God uh, about 100 years ago. And here's what J. Gresham Machen said. The Bible, with a complete abandonment of all scientific historical method and of all common sense, is made to say the exact opposite of what it means. 
No Gnostic, no medieval monk with his fourfold sense of Scripture ever produced more absurd biblical interpretation than can be heard every Sunday in the pulpits of New York. That's why they threw him out. He was speaking against liberals who were ignoring and refusing to preach the whole counsel and the whole wisdom of God. So they threw him out. Um, This is why I said earlier, this is not a Microsoft Word document. What we tend to do in our culture, what we tend to do in the church, what we tend to do is we take passages that we're not really comfortable with or that present a problem for us, and what we do is we ignore them or we delete them. Um, When you do that, you are cutting your own throat. This whole book is wisdom. Let's go to the next verses. Because in the next verses, beginning with verse 28, wisdom is an offer that is stubbornly rejected. Now, let me go back to 26, just to pick it up because I didn't read it. Because they've rejected wisdom, God says, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your dread comes. Why? Because they rejected wisdom. When your dread comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. 29 is the flip side of verse 7. What does verse 7 say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Verse 29, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. We make a choice every day that we walk through life. And when we choose to reject the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the fundamental principle of wisdom. The the fear of the Lord is is awe for God. It's respect for God. It's... uh, It's understanding that he is God and he knows what is best and that his character is true. When I was uh, a sophomore in high school, we switched high schools. And uh, we moved when I switched high schools. And, you know, brand new school, I don't know anybody. I had played basketball at my other school. But my dad had a rule. And my dad's rule was for me to play sports, it wasn't a hard rule. It was a real simple rule. I just couldn't get any lower in a C. Well, I'd screwed around. And uh, my freshman year, that last class, I'd gotten a D in something. So we moved to this new school. And instead of me signing up for football, basketball, whatever, I'm in regular PE. So I'm in this PE class, like second period. And I'm playing basketball. And this coach comes up to me and he says, Are you, you're new here. I haven't seen I said it's my first year. He said, how come you're not out for varsity basketball? I said, well, uh, I'll, I'll go out. Uh, you know, maybe I'll go out uh, in the spring semester. He said, yeah, I want you out now. And I said, well, my dad has a rule. And I got a D, and he, he won't let me play. He said, well, you're eligible to play. I, I said, I, yeah, I know that, but I'm not eligible with my dad to play. <laughs> and he said, well, he said, I'm going to call your dad. I said, well, that's fine. You can call him. 
But that's not going to make a hill of, I mean, I said, fine, calling. It's not going to change anything. Now, you know what? My dad loves basketball. My dad was all state in basketball. My dad went to ba- uh, college on a basketball squad. Did I tell you guys last week about the, yeah, okay. My dad loved basketball. He wanted me to play basketball. He wanted me to enjoy basketball. But my dad loved me more than he loved basketball. And my dad was trying to develop me in some areas other than basketball because there are other things that are more important than basketball. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't getting a 4-0. He was just saying, no, getting lower in a C. Because he knew there were other things I was going to have to qualify for down the road other than basketball. So this coach calls my dad. My dad never says a word to me. The next afternoon, this coach comes up to me and he says, hey, I talked with your dad. And uh, he's not going to let you play. And I said, yeah, I, I knew that would happen. <laughs> this guy was a big guy, you know, real kind of aggressive, you know, kind of a jerk, actually. He really was. He was a jerk. Just his demeanor and everything about the guy. He said, hey, I talked to your dad. And he's not going to let you play. And I said, yeah, I, I figured that. He said, well, I'll tell you this. I don't have any respect for your father. And I said, well, sir, I'll tell you something. I respect him more than anybody I know. And I'll also tell you this. I will never, ever play basketball for you. And I never did. That was it for me. I could have been in the NBA, guys. (laughs) Nah. I couldn't believe that. There's no way I'm playing for this jerk. I mean, hey, I, I'm, I'm a kid. I got sense enough to know my dad was right. See, and, and you know what? I'll tell you what. I feared my dad. My dad would die for, my dad would do anything for me. But I'm going to tell you something. I had a fear of my dad. I remember that same year. After a football game. Two guys pulling up in the Chevy. They had a case of beer in the car. They had two girls and another girl that wanted to go with me, and we were going to go up to this guy's house, and his folks were out of town. I still remember in the parking lot at San Mateo High School. Hey, Steve, let's go. And this girl, come on, Steve, let's go, let's go. And I'm thinking, my dad's going to find out. I mean, I knew he'd find out. I knew my dad would somehow find out. And you know what? It just wasn't worth it. I wanted to live (laughs) to be 17. I knew my dad, and you know what? I didn't go. There were a lot of things that I really strongly wanted to do that I didn't do because I was afraid of what my dad would do. My dad didn't beat me. My dad didn't abuse me. But I'm going to tell you something. I had an awe and a respect and a fear because if my dad said, you be home at 11.30, you better be home at 11.30. It wasn't 11.31. It wasn't 11, it was 11.30. I knew there were consequences. We were talking about this today, weren't we, David? Dave Campo knows football. Great coach, great defensive mind. When he left the Cowboys, he didn't have any trouble getting the job. Excellent coach. Knows his stuff. Parcells knows his stuff. Excellent coach. If you're a Dallas Cowboy player, 
is there a difference playing for Dave Campo and Bill Parcells? They both know their stuff. What would be the difference? The difference would be fear. <laughs> that would be the difference. Campo is a great guy, nice guy. I'm sure he's a pretty good disciplinarian. Parcell, they were afraid of before the guy ever moved into town. <laughs> See, the fear of the Lord, and what happened when he moved in to work with the Cowboys, he basically said right up front, the locker room, no more card games. No more music, no more this, no more dominoes, no more this, no Because when you're here, you're here to work. Um, he focused their minds. And if, uh, if you miss curfew, you're gone. You're out. There's a fear factor. Fear can save. We, we talked about the fear of the Lord last week. You've got to instill that in a child. But the fear of the Lord is what saves us. And the fear of the Lord is beginning to wisdom. When you get a right kind of fear in your life, it's going to lead you to make right decisions and avoid wrong decisions because you don't want to face the consequences. Let me see if I can find this other quote. I want to show you how this works, even in a culture. In 1900, the average life expectancy... In fact, let me read some verses, then I'll do this. Uh, let's read 29 again. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Let me say that again. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will will destroy them. In 1900, the average life expectancy in the United States was 47.3 years. How many of you guys are 48 years old or higher? 100 years ago, you'd be gone. <laughs> no, you would. You'd be the exception. Because most men died at 47. The average life expectancy for blacks at the same time was 33 years. Because their life was so difficult. 101 years later, in 2001, the average life expectancy is 77.2 years, and for blacks, it is now 72.2 years. In the course of one century, the lifespan of blacks has more than doubled, and the lifespan of Americans generally has increased by 30 years. We have much to thank God for. Because of the advance in medical technology, something that would have killed you 100 years ago, you'll get through. Uh, James Kennedy uh, quotes Paul Cameron, who's head of the Family Research Institute in Colorado, not the Family Research Council in D.C. Uh, Dr. Cameron holds a Ph.D. from the University of Colorado. He has published over 50 articles in the recognized scientific press. They're setting out his credentials here. Now catch this. He points out that the average homosexual lifespan is somewhere in the late 30s, Um, somewhere in the late 30s to early 40s for homosexual men. It's somewhere to early to middle 40s for lesbian women. Um, he poured through approximately 7,000 obituaries from 18 different homosexual publications all over the country. What we found was this. 
for, for gays, if they died of age, the average age of death was 39. If they didn't die of age, the average age of death was still very young, about 42. Now, why is that? He goes on and talks of a young man who gave his testimony in his church, a man who had been in that lifestyle and came to know Christ and came out of it. Um, in setting up this young man's statement, which I'll give to you in a minute, Kennedy says, when you were 35 years old, how many people did you know personally who had died? Unless that was during wartime, I imagine the number would be relatively small. Listen to what one ex-gay who was about 35 told our television audience. Quote, at this point in my life, there have been at least 94 people that I know who have died of AIDS. Personal friends in the past three years. Is that not tragic? The reason that's happening is there's no fear of the Lord. Uh, did you know that Proverbs 10.27 says that the fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 10.27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. There are people who have AIDS in Africa, children who have AIDS. Some, it, it's, it's epidemic proportions, and it's, it's a real tragedy. Uh, we spend more on AIDS research than on anything else, more than heart disease, more than leukemia research, any of these other things. Um, I remember the day that it was announced that Magic Johnson had AIDS. I was taking my boys to school, John and Josh. And I still remember we were on Denton Tap Road in Cop Hill. We are at that stoplight right there at Denton Tap and Beltline, and the Dairy Queen is right on the right. I'll never forget this. And on WBAP, it said, Magic Johnson has announced that he has AIDS. And I remember Josh in the back seat. He had to be six or seven. He said, Dad, I can't believe that Magic's got AIDS. And I said, yeah. He said, That's, he's probably going to die from that. And I said, yeah. He said, Dad, I hope I don't ever get AIDS. I said, Josh, you know, you want to hear some good news? If you do what Jesus says, you won't ever get AIDS. Now, some people get it through a dirty needle. That can happen. But other than that, and, and it's very, very remote that that would ever happen. If you do what Jesus says in terms of waiting to have sex, until you're married, you'll never get AIDS. He said, for real, Dad? I said, for real. You'll never get it. You'll never get any of that stuff. I said, you know, there's other stuff that you can get to besides AIDS? He says, really? And I said, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that can happen to you if you have sex before you get married. <laughs> he said, no kidding? I said, hey, I'm telling you, there's all kinds of stuff. I said, you know that wart you got on your thumb there? He said, yeah, and he hates warts. I said, Josh, we're just sitting there by Dairy Queen. I said, Josh, there's this thing, there's this disease called genital herpes. And it's got all kinds of different aspects to it. But one of the things that can happen is that you can get genital warts all over your penis. And I saw him in the rearview mirror go, ah. <laughs> 
He said, Dad, that is gross. He, I said, I'm telling you, there are guys, and they've got that, and they'll never get rid of it. They've got warts all over their penis and their testicles. That was the, I mean, he could hardly stay still. And the light turned green, and we moved on. <laughs> it was just a teachable moment. You never know when those teachable moments are going to show up, do you? The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Last verse, verse 33. But he who listens to me shall live securely and be at ease from the dread of evil. See, that's what I was telling Josh. That's what I was telling him in the car at Denton Tap and Belt, Beltline. He who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. See, that's an offer that is available right now. Now, God is a good God because we have all messed up and we have all done things we wish we could go back and undo and we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And God is a God of goodness, and God is a God of mercy, and God is a God of forgiveness. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things, all things have become new. One of the things that can happen as we go through life is that we can grow in wisdom. Are, are, are we going to make wrong moves? Are we going to forget to seek counsel? Are we going to... Step into something we shouldn't have stepped in. Is that going to happen? Yeah. But you know what? Wisdom is still available to us. Piet Hein wrote this years ago. The road to wisdom, question mark? Well, it's plain and simple to express. Air and air and air again, but less and less and less. That's wisdom. We kill sin. We crucify it. We learn from our mistakes. We embrace the word of God. We ask him for wisdom. Navigate me. Show me. Lead me. Direct me. So what are you facing this week? What's on the table in front of you? What are you pondering? Are you thinking you can save some money by compromising your integrity? Don't do it. The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may strongly support them. The kind of men we want to be. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father. Lord, we've all made a, a ton load of mistakes and errors we'd love to have back. Well, Father, we're still alive and we're still facing things. Would you help us to learn from where, where we have erred in the past so that we might do that less and less and less? Help us to embrace your word and to love your word. Help us to look to you for guidance and for counsel and for wisdom. Help us, Lord, to take the truth which we hear on Sundays from Chuck and from uh, Michael and from Mark and Stephen and the other guys that teach so well here. 
And help us to take that word and apply it as we go through life. We really do want to be your men. And we really want to live by wisdom. Thank you that you've promised to give it to us. Keep our hearts teachable. Don't let us be conned by the deceptiveness of sin. Don't let us make short-term decisions that will have long-term bad consequences. Help us to wise up, follow you with our whole hearts. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.